Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Uh, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? Oh, this is a great Friday. I am excited to be here, Michael, and uh, let's kick it off. I know. Yeah, let's just get into it. I know we're going to be talking about this Bitcoin ETF, futures-based ETF later, but uh, we got a lot of interesting charts uh, to show you beforehand. So this is not a chart, but this got circulated on Twitter, uh, and I just had to throw this on here as the first thing that we talked about. So this is Goldman's um, analyst coverage of Enron three weeks before it collapsed. So if you look at the date there up on the top left, this was in October 9th. I think by December 2nd, uh, so about three weeks later, uh, the stock went from about $38 to um, less than $1. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it filed for, uh, or sorry, in November, uh, November 2nd rather, and then in December it filed for bankruptcy. And the title of this analyst coverage is Still the Best of the Best. And the reason I love this is, I've talked about this on the show before, but my favorite documentary of all time uh, is this Alex Gibney documentary, um, uh, smartest guys in the room, yeah. uh, which is coverage yep. of Enron, which is just awesome if you haven't seen it. But yeah. uh, Mark, you probably were paying attention to this uh, live. So what's your what's your kind of no, take on look, this? No, Michael, we we still have uh, the original uh, PPM from the partnership. <laughs> These guys came to our office in Chapel Hill and pitched, you know, the smartest idea in the room, and we walked out going, "Don't get it." Um, watch this thing take off. We're invested in a number of hedge funds who were short early, which is the euphemism for wrong, and mm. uh, caused some pain. And and then uh, this happened. And you know, we, we we did a little happy dance. Not not a bit. I, you know, I look. I don't I don't root against anybody. I don't yeah. like fraud. I don't like uh, hype. Uh, I don't like crazy prices of things that, that make no sense, which we'll talk about later. Um, so it, uh, it's interesting. Now, the, the, the best thing that did come out of this, you know, there's always a silver lining, was, you know, this thing explodes. And there was a particular trader inside uh, this space who then went on to form a hedge fund and was one of the most successful hedge funds of all time, uh, John Arnold probably one of the five smartest people I have ever met. I mean, he, he was one of the smartest people in the room. Now, he wasn't part of the, the cabal. He was just a trader. But the guy put up triple digit, like multi-hundred percent returns for a number of years and self-made multi-billionaire and has been a client of ours for a long time. And he's, he's just awesome. So there were some good things that came out of the bad guys getting, getting put in jail. Yeah. One of my... Um... You know, one of my two takeaways, I guess, from looking back at Enron, which is, um, you know, you kind of think of Enron synonymous with corporate fraud, right? And if you go back, I think in time, right, like it was one of the 10 largest companies, uh, you know, in the U.S. at that time. And the total market cap of Enron, you'd probably know better than me, was somewhere around like 90 billion. Yeah, Yeah, Um, exactly. And, and, you know, when you think back to that, you know, people are like the the scale of the fraud and like the, you know, the collapse was just enormous. And now you're looking back on 90 billion. Well, that, that's much. when that's when ninety billion was <laughs> right? a lot of money, right? I mean, right now, yeah. I, I, you know, I make the joke all the time. The first asset manager I worked for back in the the late eighties, early nineties, you know, we had a billion dollars mm. back when, a, and there were five of us, right? Back when a billion dollars was a lot of money, and mm-hmm. it was the largest spin out uh, of a university. It was two university professors, and you know, the first quant shop, and I mean, it was a big deal. But now you say a billion dollars, and you're like, yeah, whatever. You say a trillion, and people still don't freak it. I mean, it's it's amazing. But this this was this was big on so many levels. I mean, one, it was iconic. Right? Everybody thought they were the smartest guys in the room. Everybody thought this was was so great, and and it was kind of similar to a current story where there's this company that everyone thinks is so amazing and is doing everything mm-hmm. right, and everyone else doesn't know how to do it. Well, it turns out the other people that were doing the business the right way are still around, and and this one is gone. So whether that happens with this other one, I I don't know. But but uh, I I think just because everybody believes something 
is real doesn't make it real. Just because everybody believes something is good doesn't make it good. Just because people believe it's smart doesn't make it smart. And the problem is, as you get rich, like as you make profits, you lose your ability to, to discern truth. And you just, you just believe. And I think that's where we are today in, in the world and in the markets. It's people have lost their ability to question They've lost their ability to think critically or think at all, right? So, hey, I'm getting rich. And I think, you know, I've talked about this. One of my favorite managers, Bill Duhamel at Route One, mm. has this paper sign in his office. And it says, with every investment, we get richer or wiser. Never both. Yeah. And yeah. I think that this is a perfect example of that. People got richer, but then they got a little stupid and then they lost a lot of money. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not... 100% sure of what a uh, modern day company might be referring to, but I might have a guess and it might lead into this next slide. <laughs> you might but have a slide on it, or, or maybe. I, I, mean... might, I might have a slide. And let, let me do my little, my little lead in oh! here. Uh, so we're going to talk about I, that. I, I, that is amazing. That's all here. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in, in, this, in this documentary, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, there's a woman named Bethany McLean. And I don't know if you or our listeners are familiar with Bethany, but. Um, I love she, Bethany. She... Bethany wrote a story about me a long time ago. I. I have I have actually been to her porch in Chicago picking up John Hempton, who is a good friend of hers who stayed at her house. Bethany is the best. I mean, she is the best. And that book that she I mean, she's she's the best. She just wrote a new book. So I'm just going to my baseline assumption is just going to be that, you know, everyone that I talk about now. Um, <laughs> that's going to be the baseline now. Uh, but she you know, she she was a journalist at Fortune at the time. She helped break this story. She worked with a lot of short sellers um, who helped expose Enron. Um, and uh, you know, she write she wrote this article back then, like, is Enron overvalued? Uh, but she she since has kind of made a career out of covering like financial misdeeds, uh, right? Yeah. She kind of wrote about Aubrey McClendon, um, and uh, you know, she's got this new book on on Saudi Arabia and, and energy and all that kind of stuff. But she she kind of came up with this idea, and she talked about it in this documentary that I really liked, which is the line between a fraud and a visionary is extremely thin. And she actually mentioned, uh, you know, talking about Jeff Skilling, the CEO at Enron was she actually believes in covering this, that there was a point where they might have been able, been able to make it, right? If, uh, if certain things hadn't happened with the stock price, that they actually could have gotten away with a lot of it. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to uh, Tesla, right? Because, you know, with, with a guy like Elon Musk, he's just such a personality. My, my personal theory on this guy is that he's just completely narrowed his two bands, his two, his like band of possible futures into two outcomes, right? Yeah. Where it's just a complete visionary genius and he flies off in a rocket ship and dies on mars which apparently he wants to do or he goes down as a complete fraud right and like when you when you look at these charts i i have no personal opinion on on elon musk um but uh yeah when you look at these charts it's pretty stunning right so you know tesla's market cap uh, for those who are, are listening just audio here we're looking at a chart of uh uh, Tesla's auto cap uh, or um, market cap compared to the rest of automakers in the U.S. Uh, and their sales, and you can actually see that uh, Tesla's market cap is the same as like Toyota, Volkswagen, Daimler, GM, BMW, Honda, uh, Stellantis, Ford, SAIC Motor, all, all these companies combined. Uh, but their sales is, you know, I don't, can't do this math off the top of my head, but like one twentieth. So yeah, 5%. I know you have strong opinions. Yeah, I know you have strong. No, I, 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 I have beyond strong opinions, and and look, I I, I think. I, I don't think this is a fraud in the way Enron was a fraud. Uh, yeah. I, I do believe there has been fraud committed multiple times. I, I think he's made fraudulent statements. Uh, I think in, in a normal world where uh, corruption wasn't normalized through lobbying, he'd be, have been censored, removed, maybe even jailed for some of the stuff that, that he's done. Um, all that said, uh, you know, look, he did achieve something that is yeah. pretty amazing, right? He brought back a hundred-year-old technology that had basically been shelved by Henry Ford and all the other people on the left-hand side of this chart. That you know, we talked about this, I think, last week, even that mm -hmm. uh, maybe two weeks ago. But look, the the largest car company in America in 1903 was the American Electric Car Company. Right. Electric cars are not new. They, they were going to be the thing. And Henry Ford and, and John D. Rockefeller had a different idea. They wanted to sell 
well, they didn't even want to sell. They just actually didn't want to flush the gasoline down the river so the river would catch on fire when he was making kerosene to light lamps. And he told Henry, hey, if you put this in your car, it'll burn and we can do internal combustion. And, and so they, they basically you know, put American Electric Vehicle out of, out of business. And that technology has been around for a long time, but it, it wasn't popularized. And one thing that no one can debate about Elon is he is charismatic and he is visionary. And he has been involved in a lot of, I say involved, I didn't say he created, he's been involved with a lot of, of revolutionary technology. Uh, you know, he didn't start SpaceX, but everyone thinks it's his company. He didn't run SpaceX, but everyone thinks it's his company. But he talks about it really well, and, and he certainly invested in it, and he's certainly, and he's done incredibly well for himself. He's done incredibly well for shareholders to this point. But this is an example of one of the many things that's wrong with the world. And, and I actually tweeted about this late last night, that don't be fooled by money illusion. This is money illusion. The nominal price of assets is rising because the value that we denominate those assets in is being destroyed, the currency. I mean, we have turned the US dollar into a shit token or a shit coin. And it, it is literally toilet paper. And the more the nominal prices rise, the more people think it's good and the more the Ponzi has to go on. And the only way, the only way to keep the Ponzi going is to print more money. And by printing more money, you increase the nominal value. And again, we've seen this movie over and over and over, and we know how it ends. You just don't know when it ends. Yeah. I, I, you know, my thing about Elon is I, I like I said, just disclaimer, I, I don't have any special, I don't really have any strong opinions about the guy. I will, I will just say, you know, when you compare Enron to something like Tesla, um, you know, Enron, they were like, sh you know, they were like calling up the guys in California being like, can you shut down the power grid to manipulate the price of energy back then? Yeah. You know, with, with Tesla, I mean, the product is great, right? Like the Tesla cars are good. And it, even when you look at space, I actually think SpaceX is a much more impressive, um, company and venture than Tesla. I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but it's like, you know, the cost to bring, uh, you know, a kilogram or something into space, they, you know, you know, they, they took it down like 75% yeah. or some incredible statistics. So, you know, in some sense, the product works. And I, I'd be curious to get your perspective on this, Mark. It's kind of this theory I have, uh, and, you know, you've led people and, and built uh, funds and companies and stuff. But, you know, as, as a leader or, or a CEO, you kind of have to sometimes stretch the truth a little bit. Um, not, not lie, but, yeah. you know, Embellish. things don't go linearly, right? Yeah, like sometimes things don't go great, right? And you can't exactly say to your team, like, hey, guys, it's looking pretty shit right now. You know, you kind of have to say, hey, no, it's all right. Like, uh, it's all going to be fine. You know, like everyone keep working towards the goal, et cetera. And the scale that you have to embellish uh, is kind of proportionate to the size of the goal that you're trying to achieve. So one of these other theories that I have for Elon is just, he set some big audacious goals for himself, right? And whether or not you believe he's really trying to get, make humanity a spacefaring species, et cetera. I mean, even just building a huge electric car company and a space company, those are big, outrageous goals uh, to set out on. So, 100%. 100%. He, you know, but but I, I again, well, I mean, we could talk too long on this, but there's all kinds of things that, that bother me about this story, right? Which yeah. is electric vehicles do actually make some sense in the sense that why does every car have a power plant on it? It does mm -hmm. actually make sense, just like distributed networks make sense, to have a distributed network of power generation, power storage on chassis, and, and drive around that way. So that actually does make sense. Um, but this idea that it's you know green versus not green, and hydrocarbons are not green, and this is green, is kind of comical. Right. I mean, yeah. how is the electricity being produced? Much of it using hydrocarbons, actually. Uh, how are the materials that go into the batteries produced? Much of it using hydrocarbons and some of it doing way worse damage to the environment than the actual carbon emitted by uh, internal combustion engine. So and people are going to be their heads are going to be exploding right now. So that's not true. Michael. Yeah. Some of it's just fact. Right. And I'm not saying it's equivalent. And 
The other problem that I, that I really haven't, it's the, the chart on the right. Even yeah, if everyone wanted an EV, which is not true, but even if everybody wanted one, it can't happen for 30 years. Like our, our fund, we have a, a longshore fund and uh, it's up a lot this year. Why? Because we overweighted energy last year when everyone was basically said hydrocarbons are done. ESG has wiped them out. Everyone's going to divest. These stocks are worthless. We're like, I, I don't think they're worthless. And I think oil yeah. prices are actually going to recover when you know things start to return to normal. And oil prices now are back to $80. People were saying they were going to zero, remember? I mean, literally a year ago, people said oil was going to zero. Mm -hmm. Anytime people say a commodity price is going to zero, you should buy a lot of it. Um, <laughs> and, and oil is gonna be with us for a very long time. And that doesn't mean there won't be a continued migration, but some of those companies on the left are making electric vehicles. And everyone says, oh, but they're not as good. I don't know. I've been in a couple of them and they're just the same. I mean, electric drivetrain, is not unique, right? The drivetrain process of, of an electric vehicle is not unique. Getting enough batteries is a challenge, and, and Tesla, I think, does have a lead there. But they don't have an insurmountable lead, and they actually don't own the technology. So, um, I don't know. I, look, this is an anomaly. You, you can't have a company that I've stated publicly will never make money. Tesla will never make a profit, a real profit. Like if you if you take out the credits that they sell, which they paid for through lobbying to get this exemption, they've lost. They I mean they've torched. I call it you know an, an internal. It's not a internal combustion engine. It's a cash incineration engine, and a CIE. And these guys will will never make money. They promised us thirty five thousand dollar cars. Now the lowest price you can get is forty two, and that barely runs. I think you have to get the steering wheel for extra. Um, so promises are great. People love a story. You know, the greatest showman, the whole thing. I, I I do actually refer to him. I think I told you this a couple months ago uh, that you know I refer to him as the P.T. Barnum of our age. But then I saw yeah. the greatest showman. I'm like I got to stop saying that because I actually like P.T. Barnum. So. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much to talk about with this, but I, I do want to make sure that we get to some of these other stories. And um, this this chart, I this was a last minute edition. Um, you know, Lynn Alden Love. a little while ago uh, told me to look into lightning. I, I think I was thinking about lightning in totally the wrong way, because my you know, my thought process behind lightning was why would I ever want to spend my Bitcoin? Right. I, I have been accumulating Bitcoin for a while. I want to hold it. I don't really care about something that enables me to spend Bitcoin. But just look at the adoption on this chart and like two things to point out here, uh, which is one, you know, a lot of the L2 adoption that's going on, you know, for other kind of layer ones like, um, you know, outside of Bitcoin, they're, they're all kind of releasing a token. Right. And like that's and they, that's like kind of drawing people into their network for the wrong. You know, you could say the wrong reasons. Right. But for Lightning, there's no additional incentive. People but Michael, literally you just don't want have to, to look at this. You chart. don't have to s uh, spend your Bitcoin. That's that's the beauty of Lightning. And, you yeah. know, I, I just took a sip of my, my coffee. This this coffee is courtesy mm. of Lightning. So anyone who sent mm. me a tip in the last week on Bitcoin, I mean, on, on Twitter, thank you, because this coffee is, is is on them. And that came through the Lightning Network and through the Strike app. And, and look, those people took fiat and sent me fiat, which I then spent on this cup of coffee. It went over the lightning, I mean, over the lightning network and over the Bitcoin rails, but we didn't actually spend Bitcoin. I mean, there was a simultaneous purchase and sale of Bitcoin, which allowed the transaction to go through. That is the genius. And, yeah. and what Jack has built, Jack Mahler's has built, is extraordinary. And I'm very happy, full disclosure, that we own a piece of that company and, and hopefully we'll own more. Um, and the adoption of this uh, payment system is not going to go down. Okay, just just full stop. Now it may not. It's not going to be the only one, and there will be other things. But you just think about when when Visa started, right? It was a little paper card uh, in Stockton, California, of all places, because mm -hmm. uh, Bank of America out there had had you know basically all the merchants in in that area, 
and they said, hey, so let's sign you up for this, this payment system and let's try it. And I mean, I remember my, my mom and dad getting the first plastic card, right, back in, in the 70s. And, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this, you know, thing that you just forget about. It was a big deal. Right? It was a really yeah. big deal. And they, they tried it. And oh, now look, that worked. I, I don't have to carry my wallet around. I don't have to. And, and those payment systems are really interesting in the sense that Visa doesn't actually transfer money. I mean, they, they, they facilitate transactions, but they don't take my money out of my bank account every time. What do they do? Once a month, I settle up. Right. And they just keep a big spreadsheet this is a little different than that, but it's it's simply a rail on which payments can occur. And this goes back to the whole conversation we've had about protocol layers. You know, the internet is pretty clear. We got TCP at the base layer, TCP IP at the base layer. We got FTP for files. We got SMTP for emails. We got HTTP for websites. And we got www. that ties it all together. And we know that right now you and I are doing voice over IP and, and image over IP, but it's going across TCP IP rails, but you can't own TCP IP. Yeah. We built out these Bitcoin rails, this Bitcoin blockchain, this incredibly secure network, this incredibly global network, not fast, but incredibly global and nearly instantaneous. And so now, I can send you money and I don't have to send you Bitcoin because I don't want to send my, I don't want to sell my Bitcoin either, but I can send you money over that network and, and it's extraordinary. And so this chart is, is truly awesome because as the number of lightning nodes increases, as the number of users, as people have that aha moment, uh, the demand for, or the, the back and forth demand for Bitcoin will will rise now the one thing that that's a little um i won't say it's not it's not that it's misleading but is no bitcoin actually changes hands now you, you can have it change hands but it doesn't have to change hands right? right simultaneous purchase and sale uh so you're just using the network so so for me what's really necessary for you know all the price go up people is more adoption more ownership, more conversion of fiat into Bitcoin. This is just a way to use Bitcoin to facilitate a payments network that doesn't cost us three to six percent or, or more if it's remittances. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, it's just like I personally felt the need to include this chart uh, this week because I think I've just been wrong about lightning in the past. And um, basically, anytime Lynn Alden says, hey, you should actually look into this, um, you know, I hate being on the other side of anything that Lynn Alden is yeah. arguing. And, and, you know, the other uh, the point that, that she made, uh, which also really made me think, is just that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, like, yeah, international uh, payments use cases to consider. It's not just like, hey, can I pay for my coffee in Bitcoin? But there is, you know, it's this age old, uh, you know, argument uh, within crypto, but like the remittances market, right? Like people using this as a global payments network. Um, I just think it's really interesting. It's something to pay attention well, to. Well, it's already um, happening. And, well. yeah. and look, if, if you can disrupt a 162-year-old monopoly, Western Union, um, and the Bank of International Settlements, you know, which is even older, uh, it's a good thing, right? Yep. Because monopolies of anything, whether it's monopoly of money creation, monopoly of payment systems, monopoly of custody, Monopolies are bad, they're evil, mm -hmm. and they, they abuse their power and, and they make things more expensive than they should be. And the idea that, you know, I, I, we've talked about this, right? If, if I had a mother-in-law in El Salvador, which I don't, I have a mother-in-law in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but if I had a mother-in-law mm -hmm. in El Salvador and I wanted to send her money, she'd get 50 cents on the dollar. That's insane. Yeah. If I sent her a lightning payment using Strike, she'd get a dollar. Well, peso. I mean, it would turn a dollar into a peso, but uh, which that's pretty cool too. I mean, that's pretty cool too. It is pretty to cool. I mean, it's 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 amazing actually to to take that green piece of paper and turn it into a red piece of paper uh, using a gold coin. Although there's no gold and no coins in Bitcoin.
Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. You know, um, I've been talking to my dad now for Bitcoin about uh, four years, and one of the experiences that he had that made him finally look at this more seriously was uh, my sister, you know, was doing a semester abroad um, in Switzerland, and the pain of trying to send her money over there was, and I was explaining to him, I was like, I I know you won't use this, but the technology exists, you know, to completely bypass the problem that you're having yeah. uh, right now. So, um, I so there's this whole thing that's going on right now. Um, I, I actually I want to see. I'm going to stretch the limits of my technology here. Now I'm not going to be able to click on the link, but uh, everyone should go check out uh, Jim Bianco. Basically, did a whole great thread um, on this, uh, which is basically this great wave of uh, employees leaving their jobs. Um, that's happening right now. So on the on the left here, you're looking at a chart of voluntary job separations, which is initiated by employee. We're looking at essentially um, an all time high, right, which is just over four four point two million uh, people left their job uh, in the month of September. Um, and then you're looking at uh, on the right U.S. quit rates, uh, which is seasonally adjusted, uh, which is like just about three percent of the overall workforce quit uh, and left their job. Um, and uh, you know, Jim. Also, this is these are all just charts from Jim's thread. Um, so, uh, you know, especially within accommodation and food services, uh, there was a huge jump um, in terms of quits and people leaving. And you know, you know, my kind of take on this is people are leaving their jobs in, in basically every sector uh, in the U.S. But it is kind of happening in these low-paid, um, you know, kind of service industry type jobs. And uh, one of the things that Jim pointed out, there was a survey that was done, um, and you know, the two two of the largest reasons why people are leaving is they don't feel fulfilled or emotionally supported, um, which is basically just uh, Chinese for uh, I hate my boss, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm quitting. This is bullshit. Um, and then also there was like, uh, you know, for flexibility, right? Because their their current jobs wouldn't allow people to be flexible, and I feel like that actually is probably a pandemic thing. I, I have a couple thoughts on this. It's something that I've I've kind of just noticed uh, firsthand experience. I think there is like a lot of turnover uh, that's going on. I've talked to my my old boss, my last company, who's now the CEO, and he's uh, you know just remained a good friend. And um, 
yeah, it's, it's something that he's noticed as well. I don't know. What, what's your take on, on everything that's happening right now in the labor market, Mark? Um, again, not to go too far down uh, down this uh, rat hole, not even a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but the rat hole. Uh, it's all part of the plan, right? Mm-hmm. This This is the plan, right? The plan of a dictatorship is to make the masses dependent on you okay so the way you do that is is you create economic duress and then you shower them with free money okay so you buy their votes first so you can get elected and and secure and then you you basically create dependency and that dependency is this whole ridiculous concept of universal basic income and, and handing people money to do no work, to do to be not pro- productive members of society, to basically sit. It's like, I, you know, it, it, the extreme of it is is WALL-E, right? The movie WALL-E, where those people are on that ship waiting to come back to Earth and they, they sit there and drink big gulps and, and watch, you know, advertisements. And consumption of stuff is encouraged and you know product productivity is discouraged i mean think about what we're doing on the tax side right we're we're super taxing ceos of businesses in california are you joking it's it's the nexus of innovation and wealth creation and we want to tax those ceos we want to disincent the creation of 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 wealth and jobs and look food service jobs are hard i mean i don't know if anyone's ever been a waiter but it's hard work i have and and it's and it's maybe not fulfilling um but it does put food on the table and and pay the bills and and you know it's necessary uh and there's nothing actually better (laughs) if you're going out to dinner than a really good server i mean it just makes the whole experience so good and and a bad one can really ruin the whole experience and mm-hmm. like wait a second why if you don't want to be here don't i mean you, you can't quit the problem is if you if you can't quit right if you actually need money to live um then you find a way to make it fulfilling right and make it find a way to be good at your job and and you know you can actually the thing i think it's interesting about about uh service businesses is your income is dependent on your attitude and your aptitude, right? If you're good at your job and you make the experience pleasant, I, and I think many others, will tip more generously. Whereas if you don't, you, you could lower your, your income. But if you are now paid an equivalent, or even in some cases more, to stay home. Now, but you, you had the chart maybe last week or two weeks ago that, that showed yeah. that those, those benefits are starting to be cut off, but they're not being cut off everywhere. And you know, it's the age-old question of, of like uh, the extended unemployment benefits. You know, should we keep them or should we not? Well, history tells us that if you keep them, you create dependency and, and less productivity. If you cut them off, interestingly, people will get retrained and, and go back to work. Not all of them, um, but many, uh, just out of necessity. So I'm... I'm a big believer in um, free and open markets. I don't like the price fixing in the interest rate market. I don't like price fixing in minimum wages. I think you should let wages set themselves based on supply and demand. And I don't think we should be paying people to to quit their job, personally. Yeah, I, I would also say, uh, as someone who's worked many, uh, many, many service industry jobs, I've worked at... Uh, like my first job ever was at Tim Hortons. I've worked at mm. Tim Hortons. I've worked at McDonald's. I've also done all, but like I was a lifeguard. Uh, I was a waiter uh, for a number of summers. Um, big difference in between being a waiter uh, and an employee at McDonald's, let me tell you. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I think of this, when I look at this chart, this is what this makes me kind of think of, which is, you know, this um, this idea of shipping all of our jobs off to China Right. And uh, kind of the the Trump argument of, hey, we want to bring those jobs back to the U.S. And what this chart tells me is, you know what, when a when an economy and a country gets developed enough, there are just certain jobs that people don't really want. 
right? And it's kind of this of intractable problem of, do we want to bring back jobs over that people don't want? Like, I, I'm very much a, I'm starting to, my framework is starting to be, look, globalization in a lot of ways it was good for the US, in a lot of ways we lost out. And honestly, if, you know, scoreboard, right, between US and China over the course of the last 30 years, China has lifted like 800 million people out of poverty. Arguably, they have benefited much more than the US has from outsourcing, you know, some of these, like a, a lot of our labor pool essentially to China. Um, but, you know, I look at this chart and I'm like, yeah, but I feel like if even if we brought back a lot of those jobs that we outsource, people wouldn't even want them here anymore. Oh, anyway. of course. I just, no, no, it's, absolutely. It's a tough I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Perfect example. So I was traveling to, uh, to China a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. We have an office in Shanghai and, and went over there. And at the end of the long day, the, our partner there said, all right, hey, let's go get a, a foot massage. So we, we go in there and, and it's... As one does. As one does, right? <laughs> and, and we go in and you, know, you, get, you sit in these big chairs, like big, big barber chair. And there were three mm -hmm. of us. The, and these three nice young girls come in. And, and so for $10 US, you get an hour, 60 minute foot massage, a bowl of noodles and a beer. Mm -hmm. Okay, pretty good deal, right? And so we're, we're you know, there, and, and I want to get to know these people. So I asked, and I don't speak any Mandarin, so my partner said, I said, so where are you guys from? And like, oh, we're from the rural provinces. Oh, so you moved into the city to, to, to you know, to get this job. And like, yeah. So, well, where do you live? I'm like, oh, well, we have, we, they have a barracks for us. Like, oh, that's so great. The, you know, the employer, well, we have to pay for it. Like, what do you mean? I said, well, $10. Uh, we get four and we have to pay two for the training and the, the barracks. So basically they make two and the boss makes uh, eight. And uh, I started thinking about it and I'm like, okay. I said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? He said, oh, we're saving all our money so we can open our own shops. Mm. And I'm like, okay, what American teenager would one do that job? Okay, that was first. Second, what American teenager would save the money instead of buying the latest iPhone or video game? But the work ethic of these young women was incredible. And they were thinking entrepreneurially. Mm -hmm. And to your point, that's what's kicking our ass, right? It's an attitudinal yeah. thing that I work hard, I save my money, I invest it, and I make a better life. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, as as a, a younger millennial, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, I do think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say it's a tough time to be a millennial. I think in, in some ways um, it's challenging, but I also do think we have a lot of opportunity and my generation doesn't. And look, there is this is just an observed trend in history as well. You know, when nations are doing really well, it does lead to complacency. And one thing that I will say, an experience that I've had that I would share uh, is, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, controversy around kind of within steel uh, in general. And there's this whole kind of thing with China uh, versus the U.S. and steel. And, oh, you know, China's been flooding the market with overcapacity uh, in steel mm -hmm. for a long period of time. You know, people get all up in our this was a talking point, actually, in when Trump was getting elected. Actually, um, we've been putting tariffs on Chinese steel for forever. Uh, it basically mm -hmm. doesn't do anything. Um, but I will say uh, I worked as a consultant. Our niche, uh, like the least sexy niche on the face of the planet, we helped large companies purchase steel. Mm -hmm. And there were basically three different regions that we helped source from, the US, Europe, and China. Mm -hmm. And I will say China, or uh, Europe was like the worst. You know, you call up and be like, hey, I wanna spend $30 million with you. They'd be like, everyone's on vacation four to six weeks. You'd be like, oh my God, like, please take my money. Yeah. Uh, the US was, uh, you know, you call up, they might respond to you, but past 3 p.m., nobody's responding. Nobody. Absolutely not. And it, you know, weeks to get back quotes. China, if you called them a Chinese mill at 10 p.m. at night, their time, they would get back to a, with a quote by 8 a.m. the next morning. So it's kind of like, you know, I get it. I get it. Yeah, look, <laughs> I, and well, to your point about millennials and, and Gen Zs having opportunity, it's the greatest opportunity in the history of, of the world, right? And yeah. look, I'm prone to hyperbole, but this is real. And, and it's because of this exponential growth wave that we're about to go on. And, and look, what you guys are building at BlockWorks is a perfect example of this, right? You guys took risk, uh, you started a business, you worked hard, you got creative, 
you are building a really cool business that, that provides great content and service and community. And that's a huge opportunity. But you actually have to work. You actually have to do it. And it's not easy. And it's frustrating. And there have been ups and downs along the way, mostly ups, less downs, but because you guys are kicking ass. But I, it is so much opportunity, but there's this malaise of so many, like, oh, you know, I, I, you know the jobs are offshoring and, and uh, you know, there's, there's all this, this problem with, you know, COVID. I'm like, it just depends on your perspective. It does. Every problem I totally agree. is an opportunity, right? Every roadblock may send you in a in a better direction. Every door that's closed, you know, God opens another one, and you know the whole the whole thing. It's yeah. Look, I, my life's been a winding, I say, series of happy accidents. Someone said, "No, it's divine intervention." I'm like, either way, um, I didn't plan to be here. Plan to be a venture capitalist in digital assets. That wasn't my plan. That wasn't the plan. I didn't wake up one morning when I was sixteen and say, "Geez, I really want to, you know, be involved in in digital assets." But this is the biggest opportunity, wealth creation opportunity I, I will see in my lifetime, and I, I'm gonna be mm -hmm. here a long time. I got, I got the ten year old. I got, I got to be around and and work and and tokenize the world. Right. I, I saw a clip of myself from 2018. And uh, Maria Bartiromo says, you know, you're, you're starting this new business, we're going to create digital, and, and what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to spend the next two decades tokenizing the world. Like, yeah, sounds actually pretty good. I like it. <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a good line. It's, it is funny. I, I don't have as much experience to draw back on, but I do love the idea of uh, – one thing I love about a podcast is you can uh, – Go back and see what you were thinking very honestly uh, in different periods of time. Um, and it's cool. I like to change my mind. So uh, it's useful for me. Um, I want to get your, your take on this story. So Bloomberg just came out with uh, – we, we got to talk about the, the Bitcoin futures-based ETF. All right, so yes. Bloomberg just came out with this story. Uh, it's hitting me with a subscription thing. Whatever. But basically, it's looking like there have been a lot of different applications, right? A whole bunch of different companies. Uh, Valkyrie, uh, I think uh, ARK just updated theirs. Uh, basically, uh, you know, Bitwise, a whole bunch of these companies yeah. have filed for a Bitcoin ETF. The SEC tweeted something out, which is, you know, something to the effect of, hey, if you're going to invest in a future space, a Bitcoin product, like, just be careful, yada, yada. It looks like, you know, knock on wood, uh, we've had the rug pulled on us before if you've been operating in crypto, but it looks like this is going to get approved. I guess the, the caveat is saying what we talked about, I think, last time or maybe two weeks ago, which is that a futures-based product is not ideal. There's something called roll costs, right? Which mm -hmm. is that when the futures, you know, you can, you're essentially continuing to roll the futures, there's a cost for doing that that eats away at your potential profits, yep. right? So yep. you're not, it's not as good as spot exposure, but what's your take on everything that's happening right now around the future space Bitcoin ETF? Look, I'll go on the record. It's definitely gonna happen, right? That, mm. I mean, they just telegraphed it. And mm. uh, so it's definitely gonna happen. Uh, I think that's good. Um, you know, again, we are, we are investors in Bitwise and I was actually with Hunter last week in California chatting about different stuff. Uh, and they don't have any news, but but uh, it, it's it's definitely going to happen. And I don't know which one, but look, paper is inferior to physical for all the reasons that you mentioned. But it's still better than nothing. And yeah, I agree. And it it's certainly going to uh, increase adoption. There are people who who for whatever reason don't want to own. The, the Cayman Trust structure of GBTC. I, I, you know, when it had a big premium, I understood that, but when it trades at a little bit of discount, I don't know why you wouldn't want to own that. Um, and with the ETF approval, um, that gap will probably close. So there's kind of an arbitrage to do, but um, you know, people just are comfortable with ETFs. You look at the amount of money that's going into ETFs, it's, it's extraordinary. So I, I think that's, that's a good thing. The problem I always have with with paper with futures is is the imbalance between the physical commodity and and the paper markets and, and you can yeah. see it every spike in commodity prices where there is futures whether it's gold whether it's oil whether it's nat gas what you'll see is is an increasing amount of money that flows into the paper and if you go back to 2014 you know, oil prices spiked like 142 or whatever and and then they crashed why they crash? Well, at the peak, there were four mm. paper barrels of oil for every real barrel of oil. Now, a paper barrel of oil is not a real barrel of oil. 
It's just an agreement between people to, you know, uh, exchange fiat. And like in the bad old days, or should I say the good old days, the good old days, if I want to sell you a barrel of oil, I actually had to have access to a barrel of oil to deliver to you. Now, we didn't have to actually, you didn't actually have to take delivery. We could settle up before the delivery, and then I don't have to right. send it to you. But I actually had to physically have a barrel that I could send you. Now, I can just make up an imaginary barrel in the futures right. market, and that distorts supply and demand data. It distorts how much capital is really flowing into the market. And so I think that uh, if you're buying a futures product, you actually aren't increasing the amount of money in the network, just like on Lightning, right? Using Lightning doesn't actually increase the amount of money flowing into Bitcoin, unless yeah. you use Lightning to, you know, to, 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 to um, buy or, or sell Bitcoin. Like this getting paid in Bitcoin, that does, right? If you're converting fiat into Bitcoin over Lightning, that, that's fine. That actually is, is positive. But if I'm turning fiat to fiat over the Bitcoin network, that's not increasing the base, which is what we need for the, the network value to go up. And um, so I think there'll be probably a buy the rumor, sell the news. Yeah, but Bitcoin is super overbought. It's only been this overbought in a very small handful of circumstances. The last time we were this overbought uh, in September, which is not that long ago, uh, <laughs> we had a 23% drop in, in about 10 days. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. But if you look at periods of overbought and oversold, they don't plateau. Right? They don't go down and plateau. They don't go up and plateau. They spike. So they spike. you go from overbought, usually pretty quickly to oversold. Same thing with your, when you're oversold uh, at an extreme, you go to overbought. So the 60 is a really important number, and we're just on the cusp. Uh, you know, we talked, I think it was last week, about the cup and handle. This is one of the yep. best cup and handle patterns I've seen in a long time. We had a really mm -hmm. nice, deep base, uh, declining volume, loss of interest, people kind of giving up. And, and then we had the sharp spike in, in uh, uh, August, uh, the you know, correction in September, and now you coined the term, October. Uh, so... <laughs> I, I got to say, I don't, I can't claim credit for that, Mark. Oh, okay. do, you know who, do you know who Crypto Cobain is? Oh, yeah. Do you know yeah, who yeah, that yeah. is? He had this tweet. We can link to it in the show notes. Uh, he tweeted back in January. You know, this was when Bitcoin mania was like full, yep. full on, right? It had just run from like 10 to 30 or something. Everyone was like, it's going yep. right straight to 100. Yep. And he tweeted this thing out back then. He was like, I fully believe we need to have a full blow off top and trade sideways until October uh, before we get to 100. Wow. Really I mean, I'm sure he was taking a shot in the dark, but it was like, it's like, I'll, I'll send you the tweet after. It's like an unbelievable... Uh, call your shot uh well, there's there's, there's a, there is a seasonality to to this asset and so yeah maybe he was looking at that but but it's a great call and yeah. look october has been intense i mean we're up i think 45 percent in four yep. weeks so uh but i i think we're overbought i think people need to be a little bit careful uh and look i, I say this all the time you should never buy everything at once right you should be accumulating ownership of the network the daily price does not matter. Price is a liar. What matters is ownership of the most valuable network in the history of mankind. If yep. you don't own a piece of the most valuable network in the history of mankind, why? Tell me why. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I don't understand how anyone could not want to own a fraction of this network. It makes no sense to me. And then we can get to the whole issue of money and what's happening to our fiat and how it is being destroyed at an accelerating pace. And you can see that in the nominal price of all assets, you know, from real estate to, you know, collectibles. I mean, the, the craziness. Now, look, I'm a huge fan of NFTs. Tokens are going to change everything. I mean, everything. Yeah. But what's happening in certain NFTs is just money illusion. People have zero basis ETH and they're paying 
prices for things that are illogical because they don't value the money correctly, I think, I, personally. I, to I completely agree. So I have this whole theory. So the next the next bit of news that I wanted to talk to you about was exchanges launching, um, like Coinbase and FTX, both well, launching we are like NFT on, exchanges. We are like on a, like a, a mental, yeah, that's good. Similar wavelengths here. So here's my thought on this. Long-term, extremely bullish for NFTs. I also, I am agree with you. I am long-term, I think NFTs might actually end up being more consequential than uh, things like DeFi, et cetera. It's a really unique um, ownership structure. Mm -hmm. That being said, I have noticed like, I think people get this wrong on, and you as a VC, I'd be curious to get your opinion, but uh, you know, people say, oh, all this VC money coming in, that's bullish. Long-term bullish, completely agree with you. Yep. Short-term, I will say VC money and funding tends to come at market, market tops. And I think the equivalent is kind of what we're seeing in NFTs right now. So Coinbase launched an NFT marketplace. FTX launched the day before. I'm sure that wasn't an accident. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, those guys are on top of it. Yep. Um, already, you know, uh, uh, Brian Armstrong tweeted one day after. So they launched on Wednesday or they announced that they were planning on Wednesday. They had 1 million people signed up by Thursday. I think that's up to like 1.7 million already at the time of recording, which is Friday morning. Um, but my take on this long term, extremely bullish. Most people still access crypto through Coinbase. I you know, they're an advertiser on this show. I personally, I keep most of my assets on Coinbase. I trust them. I think they're a great team. I will say, and I think what they're going to do is they're going to broaden the base of people that use NFTs hugely. I will say the timing on this to me feels like, I think it's calling a market top in NFT. I'm, I hate to, I'm not a markets guy. I don't look at charts, but I will say, I feel like this is the, a, a momentary top for NFTs. It's just my personal opinion on the whole thing. I don't, what do you think about what do you think about this whole this whole um, thing? I think your instincts are right on, um, but I I'll modify it subtly, in mm. the sense that it's absolutely uh, a momentary top for the most popular and uh, highly demanded. Um, mm. because things that are popular fade because something else comes up that, that becomes right. equally or more popular. Um, here's the thing. There are 68, maybe even 69 now, because it it's, like, it's like the debt clock. It just keeps going. 68 yeah. million people use Coinbase, are customers of Coinbase. The two of us, um, most of the people at my firm, uh, again, we were owner, actually our owners. We, we invest yeah. in the private markets. We still own 80% of our, our shares, uh, which we, we probably will sell at some point. Not probably, we will sell because we're venture capitalists. So we need to return capital to our investors. Um, and that's that's not because we don't like the company and don't think it has a great future. It's just the job of venture capitalists to take private companies, turn sure. them public and send the money back. Um, so the fact that they're getting into it is important. You know. One of the reasons we're leading the Gemini deal is because of their NFT platform, Nifty Gateway, mm -hmm. which is one of the top uh, NFT platforms. And those guys went to Emory. I will say, shout out Emory. There you, uh, go. There you go. Yeah, Duncan Cock Foster. Yeah, the, the yep. two founders. And they got acquired great, by Gemini pretty early, but it's, yeah, it's a great, great business. And NFT tokens. You know, I think I think we'll change from NFTs because non fungible will be like just a word we don't need to talk about, but tokens yeah. are going to be at the core of the blockchain or what I call the trust net, right? The trust mm -hmm. net is going to be monstrous. And what you know, websites did to create the internet, making information bi-directional, tokens make value bi-directional and, and assure property rights. And there will be hundreds of billions of tokens. Everything, everything in the world, right? The piece of art behind me, everything yeah. will be tokenized and will trade on these marketplaces. And there's going to be an explosion of marketplaces, just like there's going to be an explosion of exchanges. I think there are 400 crypto exchanges right now, give or take. They'll probably get to 1,000 and then they'll go to some smaller number. Just like the bank, you know, we went to thousands and thousands of banks and then you consolidate. And so in the beginning stages, there has to be an explosion as more and more people adopt and you get distributed network effect. Then you get consolidation 
hopefully not down to a monopoly or duopoly, mm. but to a oligopoly-ish. Uh, you know, the four big U.S. banks and a couple in Europe and a couple in Japan. Um, and the few, you know, if you get to too few, then the customer loses all the purchasing power. I mean, the pricing power, and and people abuse their power. But that's a that's a long way of saying. The caveat is, I think there is a peak in certain NFTs, but broadly, NFTs are going to continue. And you know, look, I was scrolling through OpenSea last night, so I'm I'm involved in in something called League DAO, which hmm. is essentially creating a decentralized version of fantasy sports. And these hmm. guys are amazing. I mean, the, 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 the developer team and, and the, just the visionaries of this are, are amazing. I, I'm just along for the ride because, you know, it's what I do. Um, mm -hmm. I try to find smart people and back them. But so I went last night and I minted my teams for the, the, the new league. And, uh, and it was awesome. And mm -hmm. it was crazy because there was so much demand. Gas fees went crazy and I had to wait and kind of time it. And I, I tried doing volume to get the... I still pay too much in gas fees, but whatever. Um, but I got my teams. And uh -huh. and so then I was on OpenSea, kind of seeing which who I got, because it's a random generation of the teams. You don't get to draft, which I don't know how I feel about that. But but cool. So I have my my, my, my teams. And I'm going through OpenSea, and I'm looking, and I was like, you know, there's some cool stuff. But there's a whole bunch of not cool stuff. And just a whole bunch of stuff that it was like literally going to a garage sale mm -hmm. and there were a couple treasures and then a whole bunch of stuff that the person doesn't want for a reason and and there were some clever ideas and there were some you know historically like i mean i shouldn't even talk about it but the one that you know was like laughing was was the stripper nfts like really we're going there and yeah, they work I'm in strip clubs. I'm like, no, 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 no. Just stop. I, yeah. But it's the oldest profession. I mean, that, that, that's been around forever, but it's just, I don't, I don't need that right now. But, but there were a couple other things on there that I thought were really compelling. And, but there were some, I don't know when something is visually attractive and a lot of people want it. I think that's great. When something's really ugly, and people just want it to want it because other people want it. I don't know. I don't know that that's durable. But it is to a point. I mean, there's no accounting right. for taste, right? There's no accounting for taste. Art, art is, is interesting. I mean, I there are people that look at that thing behind me and say that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I really yeah. like it because it's about you know the original fighting Irish, the Irish immigrants that came to this country and and built much of the country and and uh, and then there's this little school named after them, but. Um, yeah. Anyway, I have I have just a couple I guess uh, thoughts here, and I know we got to wrap up soon. the The original commentary, yeah, I mean, huge fan of Coinbase. I think this is super bullish uh, for their business. Um, I think super it shows a lot bullish. of foresight. So bullish! Oh my god. Um, so more this is more of a commentary on NFTs uh, than than Coinbase in general. Um, but uh, I I'm in complete agreement with you about NFTs in general. I do think it's worth watching. Yeah, just because the the supply of new NFTs that are issued is just is just nuts to me. I do think that some collections like CryptoPunks and Board Ape Yacht Club, I think those have cemented as being exactly. those have cemented in the mind share. Yeah. And I I'll be honest, like I don't own NFTs. I am I'm doing my you know stuck in the middle of the IQ bell curve thing. I'm waiting for a dip. And I if I bought NFTs, it'd be one of those because even though as expensive as they are, I'm pretty sure at this point that they're not going to go away. And I think they're going to continue to get more and more valuable um the the last kind of thesis that i have and this is going to sound weird but like okay so the strip club thing whatever i'm i'm starting to see ideas crop up this tends to happen in this cycle where like okay these ideas that are going on in crypto are cool how can we connect them to real world use cases right eventually we will get there i have this weird theory though that i act i when i see that i'm like mm, nah not gonna work and uh my my analogy would be you know, if you thought about the internet back in the day, it's like it's like Vonage, right? Like the interesting mm -hmm. things that are happening right now are use cases that were never possible pre-crypto. And eventually all this stuff is going to evolve and interact with the legacy economy, et cetera. And it's going to solve real world problems. But in the mm -hmm. internet, 
it took a long time before that actually happened. And if you were just waiting for like, okay, in, you know, if you were asking the question in 1995, how is the internet going to help me solve business problems today? You would have been waiting for a long ass time and you would have lost out on a whole bunch of really interesting, cool things. Uh, yeah. We had um, uh, Anatoly, founder of Solana on Jason's podcast the other day, and he was saying how, you know, internet, uh, you know, businesses that provide services to other internet companies, that was seen as like, this is like a Ponzi circular uh, system yeah. here where you're not solving any real world problems and like, look at how successful those businesses are. So infrastructure, when I see, baby, all about infrastructure, in, and right? You, you got to yeah. build it. You got to build so it. So my thought on the NFTs where it's like, you know, this NFT will get you access to this real world thing. I'm like, nah, just get me some cool art. Uh, get like any art that wins people's mind share. That, that is interesting. I think. Yeah. Um, well, and, and the thing I liked about the, um, the announcement on Coinbase was, it talked about the community. Yeah. It's the community that builds the value, right? Mm -hmm. Supply, it's basically supply and demand, right? If you have the best piece of art in the world and no one sees it, right? Then it's not really valuable. Or if you're the best lemonade in the world, but no one drives by your corner, you're not gonna make any money. So community is what matters. And therefore the, the more ubiquitous the brand of marketplace, the better. It's, yeah. it's like eBay, right? When eBay started, I remember my board at, at Notre Dame saying, you want to invest in a garage sale company? Are you, are you an idiot? <laughs> and look, that single investment turned Benchmark Capital One into a 96X venture capital fund. One of the best venture capital funds of all time. $85 million fund generated more than $8 billion of value because it turns out that there's more to do on eBay than simply a garage sale. Mm -hmm. And who would have thunk it, right? But people who were building the infrastructure to allow for selling real goods and services to you know, having the, the, the fulfillment, right? The problem with, with any new idea is if you try it and you have a bad experience, you're lost. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you try it and you have a good experience, one of the challenges for crypto right now is the UX still sucks. In most cases, the UX still sucks. Coinbase is actually pretty good. Gemini is pretty good. A couple of the other exchanges are pretty good, but but those are CFI. But to actually hold your own keys, unless you're a digital native, it's a pretty bad. Now I think Ledger is fixing that, and we're invested in that. And um, so I like to own the companies that are building out the infrastructure to solve the problems to make tech invisible. When tech yeah works and it's invisible like right now tcp ip we're using it you know voice over ip but value over ip is bigger like yeah. way bigger one like i haven't fully developed my thoughts on this but i don't know mark like how deep you've gotten into like the whole DeFi thing like I, i'm not that deep but i will say mm -hmm. i had my friend you know like a couple months ago i had him walk me through like okay how do i use like the avax bridge yeah. right and, like how do i move assets from like the eth ecosystem into the avalanche ecosystem etc and it's like more than a UX thing. It's more than this is like a cumbersome UX. It's more like I felt like I was almost not like playing a video game, but like I'm like going from this step to that step to that step. And I'm like, oh, cool. I like figured it out. Yeah. Uh, and there's something like almost community building uh, about it. I, I don't know, but it's, no, it's definitely. Uh, look, that, that's, such a great, that's such a great insight. And look, I am, I'm not as deep as I should be. I mean, we, uh, as, as many people know, my... My uh, original two partners in the venture fund were 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 and are are maxis, and mm -hmm. and they've they've modified now. They're more they're more tech maxis, but they were Bitcoin maxis, and and so we you can't do everything, but but we didn't mm -hmm. we probably didn't do enough in DeFi, and, and there are groups like Parify and others that that you know just crushed it out of the park. Um, but I'm a user of DeFi, right? I mean I. I, I use a lot of the DeFi protocols and I, I am absolutely in our new fund going to own lots of DeFi. I'm going to own lots of play to earn. I'm going to own lots of metaverse. I'm gonna, I mean, we're going to take advantage of, look, if you think about the growth of, of anything, it, it starts small with a kernel and a seed and then it starts to grow and the surface area gets bigger and it touches more things and the surface area gets bigger. And that exponential growth is the key to everything here, right? Mm -hmm. Linear growth, eh, it's fine, it's good. Mm -hmm. And that's how the, the world used to work. We worked on hierarchy, worked on linear, 
and there is a relationship between supply and demand and profits, exponential growth and network effects changes everything. And the network effect of all being connected in a community through the internet and the mobile net, the fact that we all carry this around all the time, yep. right? And the fact that everyone can get access to everything immediately and instantaneously, and now we're gonna be able to do that with things of value. Yeah, we just talk all day about it, but we gotta wrap. I know, we gotta wrap. All right, Mark, this has been a ton of fun. I. I almost want to like benchmark some questions because I have like three questions. I want to make sure we get to them next week, uh, but whatever, we'll get to it when we get to it. Uh, this has been, this was a really fun one. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. All I'll right. see you uh, same time next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. Cheers.